If you ever thought of the verse in Ephesians 6 that says, put on the full armor of God's and having done all, uh, that you might stand firm and thought, well, that sounds very nice and metaphorical, but practically, concretely, what does it mean? How do I put on spiritual armor? How do I help other people put on spiritual armor? You just did it. That's what we do, for example, when we sing a song like that. We take God's promises, what he has promised to those who have accepted him as God and repented of sin and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. And when God then says, you are a child of God and nothing can separate you from my love, the way we put that on like armor, the way we take that up like a shield of faith or put that on our heads like the helmet of salvation is we declare it and we believe it and we say it. There was, I guarantee, someone in your row near you that needed to hear you singing that loudly and needed to see on your face and in your posture an engaged expression of that because they're relying on you. So I wanna encourage you to be fully engaged when we sing. And remember, even if you hate singing and you're a terrible singer, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. We're putting on, helping each other put on the armor of God. All right, so I want us to think about then that line that we just sang. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. That is amazing to be able to say that with confidence, isn't it? But I want to ask you a question. What if that confidence is false confidence? Do you know where those words, who the Son sets free is free indeed, came from and the context and who Jesus was saying those words to? Turn real quick to John 8. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5 here in a minute, but I want to connect the dots here. Listen to the context of when Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. John 8, 34, speaking to some Jews who earlier, although it says they believed in him, it seems like in this crowd, um, their, their lives were saying something contrary. So in verse 34, Jesus kind of challenges them. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. That's what they were saying. We don't need to set free from anything. We're, We're Abraham's sons. And he says, I know you're offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So the people he's talking to, Jesus is saying, it's a dangerous thing to say, oh, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am, if you're not. Because their actions and their motives, the fact that they were hostile to the Messiah that God had sent and refused to submit to him, but were even looking for a way to kill him, proved that God's words, Jesus' words, actually had no place in them. So this is maybe a bummer note to take it from that song right now, but I want to soberly remind you that it's possible to, to be very closely connected with the church of Christ and God's people, and at the same time, God's word not to have truly uh, planted itself in you and have for you have received Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so my fear is that maybe some of us are singing, I'm a child of God, yes I am, but God graciously this morning wants to say to you (laughs) with tears, no you're not, but you can be, you can be today. 
I think 1 Corinthians 5, if you turn there, among many things it can do for us, it can soberly but give us hope. I want to read this chapter. Maybe some of you have read ahead, which is I encourage you to do every week in your bulletin. It tells you what we're going to preach next week. Um, it's a great thing to do to read it through the week, be, be thinking on it, come already with your mind engaged on these things. But if you've done that, you may this week have been thinking of, uh-oh, Man, we've already said 1 Corinthians is a letter filled with problems in this church that Paul is going to address. And here's a biggie. We're changing subjects now in chapter 5 to a new problem, two problems actually. So let me read it and we'll dive in. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you, though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has, has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Wow. All right, question. Try to imagine if Hollywood was to make a film based on this chapter and the situation going on, how do you imagine that the the various characters might be portrayed? I mean, given what our culture seems to hold as highest virtues and what our culture demonizes, my hunch is that Paul, first of all, would not be cast as the good guy. I mean, just look at his script. Verse 2, let this man be removed from among you. Verse 3, I've already pronounced judgment on him. Verse 5, deliver him to Satan. Verse 7, cleanse him out like leaven that's infecting the community. And verse 11, don't associate or even eat with him. And verse 13, purge him from among you. I think likely he would be cast as we often see in films, sort of the, the judgmental, hypocritical, self-righteous, harsh, unloving, finger-pointing religious leader. 
And I think the church would probably be portrayed as the good guys, as the open-minded, the gracious, loving, um, tolerant. The words right there in verse 1, even though pagans don't tolerate this, they seem to be tolerating this at best and at worst even maybe celebrating, which we'll come back to. And I think the man would then probably in this film be cast as the victim, the one who's getting unjustly treated, uncharitably, just chewed up and spit out by an unloving church. But I don't think that's how we're to read this chapter. And yet I can understand why maybe that's your read of this chapter. Maybe as I read this chapter, you're embarrassed of this, even as a Christian. And you think, ah, really? A couple of reasons I understand why that might be your read are the fact is, is of the matter is there isn't a shortage of examples in America, in the world, of people in the name of Christ being hateful. That's a thing. That's a real thing of judgmental, hypocritical, self-righteous people hate, hate, speaking hateful things in the name of truth in Christ. That's real. It's also true, sadly, that we as Christians and churches can at times be very selective in our holy indignation. In other words, we can feel very strongly about select sets of sins, meanwhile, collectively turning blind eye to other really grievous sins that Jesus also says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, at times, if the church picks and chooses, that can, that can give a sense to this chapter of Christians and the church are a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. But I don't think that's what's going on here. And my goal here for our time in this chapter is to help you see that what Paul says here, the course of action he's giving to this church, is actually, in fact, the most loving and redemptive and hopeful thing he can say to this church, given what they're what they're affirming, and what is going on in it. Let me pray. God, I pray you would give us eyes to see what's going on here through your lens, with your eyes. Lord, you are gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Um, You are quick to forgive and cover over sin where there is humble repentance, and your grace is great. So Lord, help us to understand even these words in light of all that, in Jesus' name, amen. So here's the context. Verses one and the beginning of verse two lays out the problem. Again, in this letter, he'll deal with the problem, kind of lay it out there, and then help us address how does the gospel speak into this? What in light of the gospel should we do about this problem? And here's the problem. It's actually two problems. Verse one, there's an ongoing instance of sexual immorality with one of the members of their church. Verse one. It's been reported to Paul there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. A man has his father's wife. It's a a present tense verb. He has means this man is sleeping with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. Whether his his father is dead now or divorced, it doesn't matter. Paul's big point is this. That even crosses a line pagans don't cross. That should be embarrassing for the church to hear, especially given what we've heard uh, in this series about the background of Corinth and the Corinthian culture, and they certainly were not intolerant of sexual immorality, but if even this crossed the line, Paul is saying, what's going on? But there's another problem that actually seems to bother Paul even more. 
It's the fact that the church is tolerating this. At best, they're tolerating it. At worst, they're actually celebrating it or celebrating themselves for their tolerance of it. Notice what he says, you are arrogant, which is the complete opposite reaction Paul thinks that they should have over someone who's saying I'm a Christian, but ongoing, sleeping with his stepmother. He says, you ought rather to mourn, shouldn't you? They weren't grieved by it. So let's make, it's not that everyone in the church was sort of realized this is a shameful thing, but no one was bold enough to go and say something about it. And they were all just like, well, are you going to say something? Are you going to say something? No, he says, you're boastful. You're arrogant. He doesn't say exactly why. It could be if you look at chapter 6 near the end. Eric's going to preach on this a couple of weeks from now. When he speaks into this mindset that they seem to have, all things are lawful for me. Excusing sin and leading them to then not glorify God with their bodies. Perhaps they're saying, well, hey, you know, we're, we're all under grace. God is loving in, in Christ and all things are lawful. He doesn't really care what we do with our bodies as long as spiritually speaking, you know, we're in tune with him maybe. But regardless, they're, they're not doing anything about it. They're just allowing it to continue and Paul is grieved. And so here's our outline. He tells them, here's what to do, but here's why I want you to do this. So first, what are they to do? Verses two through five. And then why are they to do this, verses 6 through 8? With the last few verses kind of clarifying the what they're to do. So let's take those first things first. What are they to do? Two unpopular words, judge and purge. First he says that they are to judge, publicly pronounce judgment. They are to take a stand publicly and make it clear to the whole community and this man um, that this behavior is unacceptable to God and it is incompatible with one who calls themselves a brother or a disciple of Jesus. Verse three, though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And as if present, I have pronounced judgment. I have <laughs> spoken a word on this. This is unacceptable. And then in verse 12, he asks a question with the assumed answer, yes. So is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge, Corinthian church? Assumed answer is yes. They are to pronounce this judgment Paul's already pronounced. And I know maybe what some of you already are thinking, but didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest you be judged? He said that, right? Matthew 7, judge not, lest you be judged. I was in jury duty a few years ago, and I actually got finally into jury selection, and I'm sitting in one of the chairs, and you know, everyone tells him, you know, the, the, the attorneys, what, what do you do for a living, etc. And the prosecuting attorney gets to me, knowing I was a pastor, he said, so um, I need to ask you, would you be able to render a judgment of guilty if the evidence proves that the defendant is guilty? And I asked that because I know as a Christian you believe you shouldn't judge anybody. <laughs> so I had this dilemma right there. I'm like, I really would like to get out of jury duty so the bad hermeneutic would <laughs> help out here. I, I can just go with his take on this passage and say, got me, and, and be out, and I didn't. Aren't you proud of me? I, 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 yeah. So... But I, so I, I graciously, though, I said, well, actually, I, I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I don't think Jesus was excluding participating in a democratic judicial process like this and, and weighing evidence and being part of pronouncing guilt where it's necessary. And I don't think Jesus was excluding ever on any grounds making a statement of evaluating another person's conduct. We see evidence in the Bible clearly of that. What is he getting at? Let's turn over to Matthew 7 here. So, lest we misunderstand what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Matthew 7, Jesus does say, judge not that you be not judged. Why? For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what is Jesus calling out? What is he forbidding here? He's, he's, he's prohibiting a, hypocr- uh, a hypocritical, judgmental spirit that's quick to see, point out, and call down God's judgment on someone else's sin, even when you're guilty of the same sin, even to a greater degree. I mean, it's this absurd image of having a log in your eye and saying, hey, you got something there, Right? And we all can do this, right? We all are prone to be log eye people. Every one of us. We were driving yesterday morning. I was driving my daughter and Natani Spradley to uh, uh, their uh, orchestra down in Long Beach, and we pull up at one intersection, and Lily looks out the window at the car next to us and says, that car really needs a car wash. And I said, did you see the car that we're sitting in, Lily May? <laughs> my car is way filthier than this car. I said, thank you for the sermon illustration for tomorrow. But... Now, she wasn't being log-eyed, but we can sort of be like that, like, oh, man, that car is really, that, guy, this guy, that guy's car is really dirty. Did you look at your own car? So he, Jesus is calling that out, but notice then where he takes, goes with his analogy. Look at verse 4 again. So first, take the log out of your own eye so that then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he's not forbidding ever say, pointing out sin and helping someone else see their sin, but he's saying, if you're gonna do that, make sure first it's done humbly, non-hypocritically, and make sure you're, as, you're, if not more concerned, that you get the sin out of your own heart and life before you begin tending to others. But it doesn't mean don't ever make judgments or pronounce judgments. So flip back to 1 Corinthians 15. I think Paul would actually say no, The Corinthian church is not loving this man well and has failed him. And it's actually unloving and dishonoring to withhold a word of judgment where it's clearly needed. They are to pronounce the word of judgment that Paul has already pronounced. One other thing I want to clarify. When Paul says, I have pronounced judgment already, he's not having a God complex. He is not calling for God's condemnation to fall upon this man. He remembers God is the one that says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. His hope is actually that pronouncing judgment will lead this man to repentance and to escape condemnation through the blood of Jesus. So first he says, judge this man. Make it clear to the community and to him what is absolutely unacceptable and incompatible with one who bears the name of brother. Or sister. And then second, he says, purge him, remove him from your fellowship. He says it five ways in case they miss it. Remove him, deliver him to Satan, cleanse him out like leaven, uh, don't associate or eat with him, and purge him. Now, skip down to verse 9 through 13 for a minute, and this mention he has of a, a previous letter. I was listening to one pastor this week who preached on this, who was pointing out, you know, we have, there's this first letter that that God did not save for us. We don't have first, second, and third Corinthians. He says, given how bad the things were at Corinth, what was going on in that first letter? The Holy Spirit's like, don't give him that one. <laughs> just, just, just disappear that one. Let's just start with this one right here. But anyway, so there's this previous letter and Paul realizes that they've misunderstood something. And so let's not miss Paul's clarification. When he says, remove this, 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 this person in sin from among you, 
uh, don't associate with the sexually immoral, he says, first of all, I don't mean the sexually immoral of the world. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy of this world or swindlers of this world or idolaters of this world. Then you'd need to go out of the world. Okay, stop for a minute. I want you to notice something here. This is important. It speaks to that Christians can be selective in their holy indignation. Notice what Paul's saying here. Even though sexual immorality happens to be the point right now, the situation that they're dealing with, he is also saying that greed, um, dishonesty, idolatry, reviling are also sins which if practiced unashamedly and unrepentantly are worthy of removal from a church family. So let's not miss that. Sexual immorality is not the only form of immorality. It's just the one in point here. But Paul says, listen, I'm not saying don't associate with anyone whose lives are immoral, sexually or otherwise. Jesus dined with the sexually immoral of this world, didn't he? He sought them out to eat with. He dined with swindlers and greedy people like Matthew who became a disciple and Zacchaeus who ended up trusting Jesus and giving away more than what he had ever swindled from anybody. And so a couple of questions. Grace, are we following Jesus' lead here and not making the wrong misunderstanding? Or is it possible that you tend to avoid interaction with people who don't believe in Jesus, particularly whose lives outwardly clearly demonstrate that and you sort of remove yourself and you've put yourself in a bubble? Or are are we following Jesus' lead and moving toward people who are in the world? How will they ever be introduced to Jesus and invited to come and know Jesus if, if, you're, if you don't know them, if we don't know people who are in the world and not loving Jesus? But we also got to remember at the same time, Jesus moved toward immoral people of all kinds, because everyone is. <laughs> he also called them to leave their sin, right, behind and follow him, which beautifully Matthew did and and. And Zacchaeus did, and prostitutes did, and many other sinful people did. But I want to notice something. What came first? Jesus moving toward them and inviting them first. So I want to say something else. If you're here, you've been visiting maybe this morning or maybe for a while, and you're not a Christian, and you're not sure yet, you're not convinced yet, and in some ways you're aware that your life and and choices you make in your life, you're at least aware, yeah, I know that the Bible disagrees with this. You don't have to leave that sin behind to just be here. You're so welcome here. We want you to know and meet Jesus first. We want you to come to women's Bible study and come to Band of Brothers and sit in a grace group and attend here. You are absolutely welcome here because we want you to meet Jesus. But I want to give you a heads up. Lord willing, as you begin to see that Jesus is beautiful and gracious and kind and and gave himself for you, and calls you to himself, and you come to the point of realizing, I want to follow him, you will need to leave your sin then. That's the deal. He says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, turn from sin, and take up his cross and follow me. But meeting Jesus comes first, so I want to be clear, you are welcome here. Paul is not saying, let's make sure, check at the door, what has your week been like? The other thing he's also not saying is to remove anyone from your church who ever sins in any one of these ways. If that was the case, we would all need to get up right now and walk out the doors and put a vacant sign on the doors, right? Because this week, we have lost our temper, 
We've slandered others. We've harbored anger. I'm sure some of us have felt hatred. Some of us have done things motivated by greed or been caught up in envy. We've lied. We've cheated in ways. We have run back to pet idols, I'm sure, again. Our eyes have wandered. Our minds have maybe entertained things that you might actually never act out with your body. We have all willfully stepped over God's boundaries even this week. Amen? Yeah. So God, Paul's not saying remove anyone who has is, who is sinned. Otherwise, there's no church. But I want to ask then the question. So the question is, do you see those things that I just named as sins to confess that, that grieve you, that you want by the Spirit to put to death and be free from, and you run to the cross every week, every day, and say, thank you, Jesus, for bearing that sin in your body on the tree so that I might die to sin and live to righteousness. If so, then you are just the sort of Christian that God assumes his churches are going to be filled with. That's who we are. What he's saying is remove, though, from the covenant community of the church, anyone who bears the name of brother but continues in sin, unashamed and unrepentant. Break fellowship. Another way I want to try to help us realize that this isn't harsh, this is actually just bringing integrity to this situation. Because the reality with this man, for example, is that the fellowship he thinks he has with Jesus and that he perceives he has with the church isn't real. It's, it's, it's imaginary. It's only superficial. And so removing him from fellowship is to help this man, Lord willing, feel the reality of the case, that he does not have fellowship with Christ and the people of God. To show the man the trajectory of his sin because the trajectory of unrepentant sin eventually will be eternal separation from God and the people of God. And so the gracious thing is in removing right now is to help this man feel now while he has time to do something about it and recognize his sin and turn back to Christ that he is not okay with Christ and, God and the people of God. So how is this to be carried out? Verse four, Paul says it's to be public. When you are assembled, he doesn't say, hey, one of the elders just pull this man aside and say, hey, you're not welcome here anymore until you stop doing that. He says this needs to be something communicated to the man and the whole church in the name of the Lord Jesus. So on his authority, not just on the whim of the elders, if it's not substantiated in God's authoritative word, it's to be done with, Paul says, with his spirit present. He's an apostle, so he wants them to recognize they're acting in unity with an apostle of, of Jesus. And he says, do it in the power of the Lord Jesus, with the confidence that this word that they speak on Christ's behalf in Jesus' name, God will, uh, will carry out. And then they are to deliver this man to Satan. We need to think about that. What does that mean, deliver him to Satan? That sounds very Dungeons and Dragons. But it's not. Think about it this way. Let me just read these two verses in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, are uh, things that Paul assumes any true believer and member of God's true church could say with integrity. These are the words. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You see that language of we have been lifted out of one domain, Satan's domain, and we've been transferred in the kingdom of his son. So Paul is saying this man's unashamed sin gives no evidence that he can say that in truth. 
because he's continuing to live in the domain of darkness while claiming to be in the kingdom of God's beloved son in whom we have redemption, right? They're, they're, they're disconnect. So deliver him to Satan is, it means remove him from the church. Make it clear that he's living in the world. He's not living as part of the kingdom of God. But check this out. In saying, deliver him to Satan, that is not saying, deliver him out of God's hands. Paul's hope, actually, is that in delivering him over to Satan, God will use Satan's hands to bring this man humbly to repentance and draw him back into the arms of Jesus. That's what, that's what he, so that's going to get us to the why question here. So question number two, why are they to do this? Look at verse five through eight. Two reasons. It's for the man and for the church, and by extension, for the watching world, for the sake of the purity of the church in the eyes of the watching world. But number one, he's there to do this out of love for this man in sin in the hope of his redemption. Do you see that? Verse five, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So let's be clear. He's not being handed over to Satan to be destroyed by Satan. He's not saying hand him over to Satan so that his life would be destroyed, that that he'd be killed. No, it's that the rule of sin over his life might be defeated. We we were just, as a church in our Romans 8 conference, thinking a lot about this, of we are either in the flesh or we are in the spirit. To live according to the flesh is death. Those who live according to the flesh cannot please God. That's this domain, that's Satan's domain. And so this is handing him over to Satan so that his flesh would be destroyed. That sin principle out of which he is operating would die and God would raise this man to new life and, and give him this, his spirit that gives more life to our mortal bodies like Romans 8 says. That's this man's only hope that he'd come to his senses. And I want us to see this is last resort church discipline. This is like applying the paddles when someone's flatlining after lots of CPR. It's the last ditch effort to, Lord willing, help bring someone to see Christ for who he is and their sin for what it is. For a minute, I want us to think about uh, Matthew 18. Jesus lays out some steps for um, church discipline. And here it might seem like Paul's just jumping right to the last one, but I'll, I'll get back to that. But generally speaking, in a church here like at Grace, this is how this ought to look. If someone is in sin, if your brother sins against you or is in sin, Jesus says, go tell him his fault just between you and him. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Do you see the love in the speaking of truth? The purpose is to gain your brother. And if he listens, great. If, if not, take one or two others along with you just to establish this is, this is true. I'm not, this isn't just me. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And it's only if he refuses or she refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. At every step, the goal should be to be gaining and keeping as brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. This is a last-ditch effort, drastic measure. I think the reason Paul's calling for it is he realizes in this church, this Corinthian church has utterly failed to be the church for this man, and something needs to be done. The whole church sort of needs the paddles, <laughs> the electric paddles. But this could have been avoided if a brother in Christ in Corinth would have come to this man and said, brother, this, this can't be. What are you doing? Don't you see God's will for you and how, how you are to glorify God with your body? 
and, and, and called him to it. This could have maybe been avoided. Generally speaking, the way church discipline is going to happen in our church, for the most part, is the day in and day out mutual discipleship that we are involved in by being the church together. Look at this from Hebrews 3. I was reminded of this, this this morning. To church, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you uh, uh, to fall away from the living God. Instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For the longest time, I've only, I had only read and thought of that verse as we are each to sort of apply that to ourselves. So I am to take care, Kenny, lest there be in me an evil, unbelieving heart, which it's true. But if getting an evil, unbelieving heart because sin is deceitful and it's easy to be hardened and to be led away from the living God, then I sure hope that your eyes are on me. And vice versa, I think this is a call collectively to us, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be among any of you, if you see sin getting the upper hand in another believer's life within your church, say something, do something before we get here to to severe circumstances like this and and, and severe grace and mercy. So I wanna just ask you, are you doing this for others? Are you involved in a way here at Grace that you both are inviting that sort of input from others and you are giving that sort of input to others? Or do you just coast in on a Sunday, you fill your seat for 75 minutes and then you're out into your week and you're not really meaningfully uh, involved here? I wanna urge you to be involved in such a way that, that, that God can graciously be helping, <laughs> helping you grow to maturity and, and be discipled and disciplined in your life. So, Paul is doing this, even this final step here, uh, for the sake of love for this man and a hope of his salvation. But also, finally, he's doing it out of concern for the purity of the church. Look at verses six through eight. He says two things. My paraphrase. First, he's going to say, where sin is tolerated by a church, it'll spread. Where you tolerate and approve of or, or just let sin be and you don't speak into it, it's going to spread. Look at verse 6. Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He uses a baking analogy. Anyone bake in here? Raise your hand. Okay, I, I, so raise your hand if you don't bake. Okay, so let's explain this metaphor very briefly. He doesn't necess- he's probably not thinking of one of those little packs of yeast that you pour out the pellets and you add the water and then they start doing their yeast thing. Um, he's thinking about how you can take a, a little p- piece of dough that has no leaven in it and it's, if you bake it, it's just gonna be flat and you can put it in a jar and put it somewhere warm and dark for a while and little organisms begin to grow in it and it starts becoming leavened and it starts rising and then you can get, take some new unleavened dough and you can take that little lump and put it in and knead it in and mix it in and the whole lump will be leavened and then you bake it and it's delicious. But before you do that, you take a little bit out and you keep it in that jar. And then the next time as it keeps growing its little yeasty things, you put it back in a new unleavened lump of dough and you knead it in and the whole loaf, this one gets leavened. And you can take that little starter and keep using that and it can make a thousand loaves of bread leavened. It's a powerful metaphor, isn't it? For he says, you are a new lump. So we should name ourselves New Lump Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada. It doesn't look great on a website or business card, but it's true. I Googled it, by the way. I'm weird. I couldn't find a New Lump Church. I thought, surely some church out there is like, we're going to be New Lump, new lump Church. But, but he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you tolerate sin, either turning a blind eye to it or even 
putting yourself over the authority of scripture and saying, I think in these ways, the Bible is sort of behind and I have a more enlightened ethical way of looking at things than, than God does. Where sin is tolerated like that, sin will spread. That way of thinking will spread. Second thing he says is the reason to, to do something about this is the people of the Passover should be a people set apart. That's the point of the end of verse seven and verse eight. Let me read again. They're to, they're, they're to re- remove this man right now from their fellowship so that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let us, therefore, celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Maybe you're thinking, what does this have to do with Passover? I have a quick answer for you. Ready? Let's think about the first Passover. If you don't know, in Exodus, when Israel had grown into the size of a nation and they were slaves under Pharaoh, God sent Moses to force Pharaoh's hand and show him who really is the Lord God through a series of plagues. And on the night God was going to enact the final plague and, and, and make Pharaoh say uncle and say, you can go, he says to all of Israel, all the people of Israel, every household to take a lamb a male lamb without blemish, a year old, to sacrifice it and put its blood on the doorposts of their homes. And here's why. He says, that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I'll execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That Passover sacrificial blood set them apart and it was a covering over them and God's judgment passed over them and fell on on the Egyptians around because of the blood of a lamb that was slain. And they were to remember this every year as they celebrated a Passover meal. But not just with one meal, they were then to celebrate a week called the uh, the Unleavened Bread Festival. And for one week, every household in Israel, every home all throughout the land were supposed to clear out all leaven, get rid of all of it. I love in, in 13, it says, you will tell your son on that day as they're saying, why are we getting rid of all the leaven? Tell him, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. What the Lord had done for them was this, had delivered them from slavery, had shielded them from his holy judgment under the blood of a lamb, set them apart to be a people for his own possession, and led them to a a new land to be his holy nation. So now Paul is saying for us, there's a new Passover, We don't celebrate that same Passover meal anymore because on the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, he got his disciples together and he said, let's have one last Passover meal. I've earnestly desired to eat this with you before I suffer. And he took the bread and he took the cup from the Passover meal because he's Jesus, he can do this, and he repurposed them. And he said, no longer do I want you when you eat this and drink this to remember the Exodus. I want you to remember that I gave my body for you and that I poured out my blood for you. And this is, my, uh, this is a new covenant in my blood. I've become your, I'm about to become your Passover lamb. And in doing so, my blood now is gonna be sprinkled not just over the doorposts of your home, but over your entire life. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus forever. 
And because of that, I am going to come dwell in you, and I'm going to make you a people for my own possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart who proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into light. That's who he wants us to be as a church, a a, a people who look like that, not perfect, not sinless. We will never be sinless until Jesus returns and we are resurrected. But nevertheless, a church who is light and salt in the world. And so that's why he says that in, in this situation, you need to make it clear so the world doesn't look and say, that guy's sleeping with his mother-in-law and he's a Christian? Anyone can be a Christian. He's saying, no, no, no. I want it to be clear to the world whom I set apart called out ones are. And that's what we're to be, Grace. Until the day Jesus returns and the whole new creation is unleavened forever without sin. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I pray for salvation to come in this place. Lord, that any, anyone who's here this morning, that you would help them see that to follow Jesus, even if it means leaving precious sin behind, is better. That you are the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. And I pray that faith would come even today to this place. Lord, I pray for uh, us as a church that we would be vigilant, we would be on guard for one another, in love, um, with your good purposes in mind. Um, Help us to not be log-eyed people. Help us to be humble people, but people who take sin seriously and pursue righteousness in such a way that we are light and salt. Lord, give us um, uh, an eagerness to, to be with people in our community, in our neighborhoods, and to know people and and, and seek out those who don't know Jesus, to draw them to him. Use us in that way, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.